You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupiton. This week on the show, my conversation with a gifted songwriter, singer, and guitar slinger who has quickly risen from shy Southern California prodigy pushed by her supportive pastor dad in Orange County to a nationally admired major label recording artist redefining what could be a new genre between the fertile plains of pop, jazz, and new wave folk music, Madison Cunningham. Do you remember what you were doing when you were 23? Maybe you just got out of college, you got your first okay job, you fell in love, you were just trying to figure things out on your own. While movies and TV seem to romanticize our 20s as this carefree time of experimentation and pure fun, for me it was a little scarier than that, and I think I'm probably not alone there. I moved out to LA with dreams of writing movies, maybe playing in a band at local bars at night for laughs. I spent my days writing Burger King and Honda commercials instead, casting kids to be in Disneyland commercials and scouting locations for tire spots and finding music for motorcycle ads and wondering each night as I got home, wiped out and a bit empty, is this all there's gonna be from now on? Being in your 20s is mostly about compromise, I think. Sneaking your dream into the nooks and crannies of your capitalist cash-seeking days and your love-searching saloon-playing nights. It isn't pretty all the time. But then there's folks like Madison Cunningham. As a 15-year-old, she was already out there trying to make records, writing songs, and dreaming about a future that was just there on the horizon for the taking. Maybe as the eldest daughter of a big family, she was always an old soul. But now, as a young star on the rise, she thankfully hasn't had to toil long in dives in retirement community gymatoriums as I did, and recently she has dazzled on massive stages, opening for her heroes like the Punch Brothers, Lake Street Dive, Iron and Wine, and Andrew Bird, and teaming up with luminaries like Joe Henry to bring her songcraft to a new level. As she talked and shared her music with me in my living room here, I couldn't help but think how talent and musical expression, they're such supernatural, magical things. More than genetic, more than luck or divine providence, sometimes someone just has it. And what is it, per se? Go to the end of this episode. You could skip me blabbering right now. Listen to her sing into this one microphone. It's like an entire orchestra was gathered around her, and it was just her alone in this room. And after she was done singing, I felt incredibly lucky to be alive, because not everyone knows about Madison Cunningham yet. Imagine if a young Linda Ronstadt was singing for me, or Joni Mitchell, or Nina Simone, or Ella Fitzgerald. Maybe she was pulling a chair up, just like Madison did, right on the rug here. Madison also brought to mind someone else I've already talked to on this show. If you have a chance, go back and listen to our episode with Bela Fleck and Abigail Washburn. Madison and Bela share this similar glint in the eye. It's that deftness of delivery, the smooth, easy confidence in the way they let the music flow out of them, like their fingers and vocal cords would never think of betraying them, like they were channeling something from above that we could only try to glimpse. And I kept thinking, what is greatness, really? Is it the ability to make the incredibly difficult seem beautifully easy? Maybe. And I had the feeling, as I listened to Madison's records, that She could express things on that jazz master guitar that my fingers could never do. And I wanted to, for a moment, sneak inside those fingers and feel what that would feel like. If you have an hour someday, do yourself a favor. Lock yourself in a dark room and listen to her newest record, Who Are You Now? And forget the failed love affairs and credit card debt and smoky bars of your 20s and put your faith in the new generation now. We are in good hands, folks. No doubt about it. One quick note before I give you the episode. This is an exciting week for my gang, Dust Bowl Revival. On Friday, November 22nd, the second single of our record, Is It You, Is It Me, comes out into the universe. It's called Mirror, and it's maybe the most gorgeous, lush, orchestral song in the whole thing. Look out for that, and look out below, because here she is now, the talented, diabolically pleasant Madison Cunningham.
I am Madison Cunningham, and I am a musician. I grew up in Orange County, and now I live in Highland Park, Los Angeles. You know, Orange County is a vastly different universe. You, you the, the people that so well. don't yeah. really understand. Yeah, not at all. What can you tell us that people don't know about Orange County that we haven't seen in really bad movies? <laughs> well, I would say to, to the movies that were made about Orange County, to their credit, um, a lot of those are pretty accurate. <laughs> um, and there's there's sort of I mean there's there's a beach culture there, which is. I think a given. A lot of people associate that with Orange County, but there's a there's a I think a really special thing about that. Like that's one thing that I miss a little bit. Even though, funny enough, ironically enough, I hate the beach, <laughs> but I just like some of the culture that surrounds it. Were you more Costa Mesa? Is that where you grew up? Yep. Yep. yep exactly. Yeah, you did your research. Yeah, I lived there for probably like twelve years, and and in in between there, there was like we lived in Irvine for like two years, um, but always under the umbrella of Orange County. There's there's music scenes that I don't ever fully understand, and I've played in bands now, you know, in LA for over 10 years, and I feel like we've played shows kind of, you know, in Orange County mm -hmm. or Inland Empire, you know, Santa Ana and Costa Mesa, and then even going down into San Diego, and I never quite understand what the scene is. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, I feel like they totally get whatever I'm doing in like San Francisco or like the farther north we go. Yeah. And I don't. I feel like a total imposter or weirdo when I go down there. I'm like, do they want like reggae or hip hop or it's, really, it's not what I'm doing? <laughs> it's really hard to understand something that doesn't exist, and the music scene doesn't exist in Orange County. It just doesn't. Like I. My my favorite story to tell is that I there's this local coffee shop and I I will it'll remain nameless because <laughs> I care about some of the people who are there, but I sent in so many emails just to try and like get a gig there because they would do these like Friday night yeah. slots or whatever and they'd be like oh they would just send me to another person to another person to another yeah. person and I would never no one would ever follow through with me so. That was my, like, literally, I think that is the Orange County scene, is everyone is kind of like, there's there's venues here and there, the big one is the observatory, but yeah. I think people are just playing wherever they can play, in garages, in their friends' backyards, and um, you kind of have to be invited into that scene. And so, it's a weird one. It's called a lot, I mean, that's like, I would say Orange County is like the, the scene of beach goth. Beach goth, all right. Which is like kind of indie music but it's a little bit more means a little bit more beach boys in the worst way ever <laughs> it's postmodern beach it boys much credit yeah exactly well that and that's you know always helpful to come you know with your own sort of musical community which you your dad's a, a, a pastor mm -hmm. right so mm -hmm. you started playing music in the church and that community was sort of already there for you right, right? did that sort of give you the confidence to start going out on your own it did and it and it didn't. I think when I decided to kind of branch outside of that small uh, bubble, yeah. I didn't really feel like there was anyone on my side in doing yeah. that. So I felt actually that it was a little bit more lonely. You had to rebel a little bit. I, I suppose, yeah. yeah. And I, I think that you know that word feels harsh to right. the nature of what it really was. But um, I think once I kind of made a decision and like it's okay to be lonely in this mm. since it's something that I really really want to do and I believe in um I think people followed my parents followed that mm. and they ended up they're my biggest supporters you know mm. um but I had a few friends like in in that were on the worship team and you know they were musicians but they were they were exercising their um you know their musical muscles in church and they wanted something besides the the contemporary nature of the music. Mm -hmm. And so my dad had this studio that was built into um, the school that he uh, runs. And uh, there would be three of us that we, we would just get together and we would just just play for like three hours, um, like once a week, mm. just for fun. And, and I think that was maybe one of the most instrumental parts of Orange County for me was those mm -hmm. two friends that really we're kind of throwing new records and new songs my way. And mm -hmm. um, we, I don't know, I, I learned a lot about just 
just playing music for the sake of playing music and not not um, not for the sake of just playing songs. Right. I think I think songs are born out of those moments of um, exploration. Well, there's an interesting similar trajectory between you and some of the people that you now uh, often play with, Chris Teeley mm-hmm. and uh, Sarah Watkins, Sean Watkins, who came kind of from that Southern California church culture yeah. and then branched out into their own sort of brand of acoustic uh, experimentalism in a way. We were know. actually all, all four of us were born in Vista in, oh, in wow. different, you know, a different generation. Yeah. But Chris, Sean, and Sarah were all born in Vista. And then maybe, maybe 10 years later or more, I was born yeah. <laughs> in the same little county, but we didn't meet for like yeah. 20 years later. But it is, it is interesting how people find each other you know, it's a, it's a, it is a small world after yeah. all. Just really <laughs> backed into that one. Um, but yeah. the, uh, there was this moment that I was reading that I, I share with you about hearing the Beatles come together. I think while you were selling Girl Scout cookies, maybe. You know? <laughs> all of a sudden you hear come together and everything kind of stopped. The cookies melted. Mm-hmm. There was no sales, mm-hmm. you know. And I had that exact same moment that was like a lightning strike when I was a little kid, hmm. that this friend of mine in Chicago, just, he had like the, some greatest hits compilation, and that song specifically hit me like a freight train. And I don't know why, but it was the first time I asked people around me, like, what is that? Hmm. And how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Like, how do you get more of that into your life? You know? Totally. I think... I had a lot of moments of people telling me, this is music. Yeah. And then there were moments of when I found out for myself, this is music. Yeah. And this is what makes me want to get involved. And yeah. how how can I, you know, write something that is that real and that yeah. um, palpable. So, Beatles. You can't <laughs> go wrong. Every time I try to learn a Beatles song, I'm like, how did those chords... They're, Come they're, about, yeah. Yeah, they're so natural but also so like I would never have done that you know totally I mean they 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 had sort of an unprecedented path before them and they really I don't know made it clearer for songwriters to come after them you know do you think that there's such thing as sort of channeling something from I don't know a higher power or a, a great beyond that can harness abilities that maybe weren't there to begin with Totally, I do. It's like, how could they have written that many great songs in yeah. eight years? I think songwriting is supernatural. I, I mean, I talk about this with, with friends who are really invested in the songwriting craft all the time, where it's like, it, it's there's this sort of, for me, when I go to write a song, it starts with a fear that I can't do it because I've forgotten how I did it the last time. <laughs> and then I'll... Starting over every yeah, time. Yeah, every time. And then... You go to write it or you go to sing it or whatever, and, and when it comes, you still... The process of how it happens erases from your memory. I, I think it's like giving birth, like mm. like how it's such a traumatic experience, but mm. but when you know a mother gets pregnant for a second time or a third time, she goes back into labor, she forgot you know how, how the labor felt. And I feel like that's kind of what songwriting is. You forget how it's done, or if you have the strength to do it, or if you can do it, and I think... It's just a supernatural thing. It's a crazy thing. That song of yours, uh, Pin It Down, has that refrain, I think we've been here once before. Mm-hmm. You, know, <laughs> you know, and you as a very young person who's very talented, what are you, 23 now, 22? Just turned 23, yeah. Do you feel that your soul is older than your peers? That you've seeped in things quicker and maybe that comes from that sort of lonely um, place where you feel like only you can really express this one thing. Mm. Yeah, I've I've always been drawn to people that are older than me, um, and I'm I'm the oldest of five girls, and I think um, the nature of of you know that position of being the oldest and 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 being around people who are always older than me, I think it caused me to think maybe above my age group. Mm. And um, I still feel that way. I still feel like I'm kind of the dud of the party. (laughs) Like the, 
the you know I like to go to bed at 10 or 11 and 12 is yeah. pushing it, you know, and uh, maybe that has lent itself into my songwriting. Maybe, maybe you know, I, I hope so. Mm. Uh, but I, I have always felt like I'm, I don't really have friends my age. Mm. So I, I, and I, and I, you know, I like 70s music <laughs> uh, or music from the 70s. Not, not all. I'm not totally religious on that but I, I I kind of am drawn to things that are um, from the past or mm. uh, yeah I don't know I don't know what's a record that you've been listening to a lot recently I always have um, speaking of the Beach Boys I mm -hmm. always have Pet Sounds sort mm. of on my turn turntable and uh, or Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark mm. I love those two records mm. um I've also been listening to Tom York's new record called oh. Anima. Anima, I think is what it's called. Um, and it's amazing. That's, that's very futuristic, actually. <laughs> very futuristic music. There was a great, actually two covers that I was listening to earlier that you did of Radiohead and of Joni, you know, hmm. California. And, you know, I think there's obviously a cliche of people asking young singer-songwriter ladies, you know, like, is Joni Mitchell your hero? Right. But it's almost like not even a question. You know, she's like <laughs> part of the fabric of not just female songwriting, but of great sort of acoustic writing. Exactly. You know? But like the way that you're able to hit those high notes, it almost like, it gave me goosebumps. I was like, I don't think anyone can really do that. I almost like wish I could like play it for her, you know? You know? She'd probably be mad. Like there's reincarnations in, even though she's not dead. Yeah. <laughs> She'd probably be like, oh, what a phony. But I mean, Joni has an eye for yeah. for the phonies, I think. But um, but yeah, I, I, I do, I think you're right. I think a lot of people assume, you know, they look at any young female singer-songwriter that maybe has played an acoustic once in their life and they'll just say, so, you know, are you into Joni? She must be an influence. Yeah. Or I've heard people say, oh, this you've got to listen to this girl. She's the next Joni Mitchell. And I, yeah. my first thought is, I highly doubt that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, she, she is. She's built into the fabric, just like Dylan, just like Paul Simon, just like Neil Young, I think. You know? But I think there's some some singers uh, that you've obviously played with a bit, like Rachel Price and you know, mm -hmm. Lake Street Dive, that are sort of bridging the gap between the jazz world and the folk world, yeah. rock and roll, um, and just totally expanding what we think of as uh, pop music and genres you know? yeah exactly yeah and you you know you've been touring with some amazing people you just got off this tour with with Andrew Bird um, so mm -hmm. what have you learned on these tours in the last few years is there anything that's really stuck out to you mm-hmm with Andrew specifically just I mean I think I've learned a lot from him vocally. Mm. Just just watching the way he his biggest notes are approached in such a soft way. Mm. Um and just singing with him and watching him night after night, I learned I took a lot away from that cuz I think I would in my sets, I, I would open for him and play with him. And I felt that in my set I was pushing um my voice or maybe out of nerves or out of um, just trying to get a different tone or a better sound or whatever. And I just, Andrew didn't struggle mm. in that. And, and it, to me, I just saw that that was, that spoke to his 25 years of experience and being mm. on stage, he was very comfortable with his relationship uh, with a microphone and the way it sounded in a room. And, um, and also, I mean, a valuable lesson that I learned from him too is that he will make mistakes and mm. he doesn't care. Mm -hmm. It will not haunt him and he moves on and it doesn't it doesn't um devalue his mm -hmm. um importance as an artist. He doesn't let it. And I I'm at, I'm in a young position of any mistake that's made it feels like it's gone against um me proving myself as a young artist. Mm. Um but I've I've just learned that that doesn't matter. We're all going to make mistakes and sometimes other, those are the things that, that push us into um, being better as, as musicians and artists. And Anyway, I just love how 
easily it just falls off him. Mm. Yeah, I think there is this correlation in my mind between great athletes and mm-hmm. great musicians that you get paid the big bucks to make the difficult look exceedingly easy, mm-hmm. you know? And um, something that you do that is really impressive is the way you are an amazing guitar player and singer, but also that you're you're not necessarily worried about what uh, the music is called anymore. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's you have a through line through your songs that I'm seeing, whether you know it or not, that is starting to be like, oh, I know that that's her, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is really hard to pull off. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's about finding who you are, you know. And that, I mean, honestly, that's that's the title kind of of your record, you know. <laughs> it's like. And you were talking about how uh, writing songs was like placing blocks on a wall almost, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. How did you select the songs uh, with your producer of what the album came to be? Yeah. I mean, in, in all of 2017, 2018, I just wrote a ton of songs that I hoped would be contenders. And I felt like... By by the time it got down to the wire and we were heading into the studio, I, I wasn't, um, it was very clear what the priorities were mm. song-wise. Like it felt like How many I knew did what you the choose leaders from? were. We chose from, I mean, there were so many, probably like 30. But, yeah. but like I said, since so much time had passed from when I had written the first one mm. to, you know, the time we were going to head into the studio, it felt like everything became very obvious to me and the ones that were the weakest fell away mm-hmm. and the ones that were sort of the leaders of the pack came kind of at the last minute, like pin it down mm. came a month or maybe like three weeks before we went into the studio. And that, you know, that to me is one of the main songs on the record. It's mm. the first one, but I think it's also every time I play it in a set, it's, it's the song that kind of glues everything together, mm-hmm. tempo-wise and, you know, me- melodically and all of that. And, uh, and you've worked with Tyler Chester since you were, what, 15? Yeah, I met Tyler out of, out of nowhere at this thing called the NAMM Show. Have you heard of it? Yeah. I'm sure you have. Preaching to the choir. In sure. Anaheim. In Anaheim. Um, I hope I never have to go again. <laughs> I really do. Um, well, if you're a good guitar nerd, you know, yeah. it's kind of like heaven on earth. You know what's funny, though? I'm not. Neither am I. I'm not. I don't... I, I love when things sound good, but I don't love gear. Does that make sense? So I will do whatever yeah. it takes to get a good sound, but it has to be convenient for me. <laughs> like, I don't... You play a jazz, a Fender Jazzmaster mostly? Yeah. But yeah. it's like, if you find your guitar... Why would you want to leave your guitar? That's yeah, what I don't I've, understand. I've never been the person that's been saving up for the Les Paul or yeah. the, I don't know, the Gibson. I mean, I I would definitely love a Gibson. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to speak too soon. But yeah, I, I, I'm all for finding the junky thrift store guitars yeah. that just have that thing and have that song in it. Um, but yeah, so I met, that was a rabbit trail, <laughs> but I met Tyler at the NAMM show, my dad, and Tyler was sort of like in the church world that my dad was from uh, when he was younger, and my dad knew him from, from that time and knew that he was a great producer, and and I was 15, and I had a bunch of songs I wrote since I was young, and um, my dad just kind of tapped him on the shoulder and was like, hey, would you be interested, do you remember me, first of all, and would you be interested in, like, producing my daughter, and I was kind of hiding behind yeah. him, and I was so embarrassed, uh, but it it all worked out. He agreed to it. And after that, we just kept kind of finding each other. We kept mm. working together. And he's he's been my, I would say, uh, mentor and guide in the in the craziness of what is the music, <laughs> the what is yeah. considered to be the music industry. Well, it's so. good to have that sim- symbiotic heart connection with someone, you know, yeah. that you're collaborating with. Because it can be a very sensitive vulnerable thing it's like yeah. you know it's like showing someone your diary every day of the week you know oh it, i can't tell you how nervous i was to enter the building every week just because it was like i'm, I'm an introvert and it's mm. it still is hard for me to show people my mm. my work 
because I just, I hate self-promotion, but I also hate having to explain myself. <laughs> like, yeah. If someone says, what does this line mean? I get really nervous to kind of have to Figure it out yourself. It. Yeah, you figure it out. I'm not going to spoil it for you, uh, which I still feel like saying that all the time. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know. It just came. <laughs> it just came to me. No. Uh, uh, yeah, so and it, it was a it was a growing experience for me, and it still is. I, I don't know why that is. I don't know why I get nervous, but I think the one thing that I've been amazed by as I've maybe grown up as a songwriter is that I've become okay not knowing what my own songs are about. Yeah, and that's the power of it. And I, to me, a stale song is when I know exactly yeah. how to interpret it because it's like oh. You're kind of, you're not showing me, you're telling me. And I like to, to find my own meaning in things. And I mean, that's what all the best songwriters do. The last song on your newest record, Bound, you wrote with Joe Henry, right? Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, giving you these poetic, meandering sort of couplets, you know. And you recorded it outside in the wind mm -hmm. in El Paso, which I thought was really cool. Um, how how was that process of, of taking his poetry and his sensibility and melding it with yours? Oh man, it was a seriously a sincere honor to work with him and to to kind of get um, an unbridled piece of his work. He kind of just sent it in drafts. He sent the first draft and it was way different than what we ended up with. But then like the next day he'd go, oh, I feel a little insecure about what I just sent, I'm gonna fix it. And then he would fix it and just keep sending drafts over drafts over drafts. And finally we, we got to, you know, the the three couplets that mm. are in the song now. And there was, Tyler and I kind of sat down one day and we're trying to figure out like the chord pattern and what the feeling of it should be. And it just kind of, just kind of came together. And then we wrote, um, a chorus mm. and it was kind of half written and we showed it to Joe and the lyrics um, maybe we're better bound mm -hmm. for what we wrote and he he finished the first half which was oh find your way however found mm. but maybe we're better bound mm. oh find your way He to to me he just it, it's it's constantly um, a thing that he's whittling at he's working at so mm. there's the way he's able to come up with things and correct things and see the long picture of a song mm. is is incredible to me he he just is constantly um, seems like he knows the right thing to like confuse and surprise and speak to the listener and mm. that overwhelms me, blows my mind. And he, it was actually cool because I had I'd, I'd been set up with a lot of co-writes that year and had walked out feeling disappointed and it, some of them were really awkward and I would show up to people's houses and yeah. it just was just just strange time. It's like, it's like a blind date that you didn't ask for. Exactly, and you gotta get to know each other in 30 seconds and then figure out how to write something from that and it's just, you know, a lot of insecurities could surface. And when, Tyler was kind of reaching out to Joe. He'd been working out with him and um, working out with him. <laughs> They've been going to LA Fitness. 24-hour <laughs> fitness. No, they'd been uh, working together. Uh, and <laughs> and Joe, or Tyler had kind of reached out to Joe and asked if he would maybe be interested in a co-write situation with me. And Joe said, I would, but I would rather not meet up in person I'd rather do it over email and he mm -hmm. said because it's really hard to be in a room with someone and have to justify your first instincts without mm. knowing what mm. you're trying to say yourself and he's like I like to be kind of in the dark about that for a long time while my mm. subconscious is working and flowing and it made a lot of sense to me and it confirmed why all of my mm. co-writes were just awkward and felt a little aimless and um, I think a lot of people are really, really good at that. 
and I'm just not, I do better when I'm in my own world for mm -hmm. as long as I need to be. Do you think people maybe naturally underestimate you or treat you a certain way because you're a young woman artist and and not like, you know, a seasoned vet or something in their mind? Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, and I, I mean, in, in these particular instances, I, I was coming to people kind of saying like, I need help finishing this song. So yeah. maybe that's why... Maybe that's why they, they viewed me that way if they did. Um, I felt like all the people I worked with were really very kind and open to anything, open to ideas. I think I think that co-writing is its own uh, muscle and, and um, art. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like that's a huge part of my artistry necessarily. Yeah. But songwriting is just not... And email exchanging, that's great. Because yeah. <laughs> it takes someone who's willing to put in the emotional work too. Yeah. Like people who are really good at it, I've noticed, really take the time to kind of make sure that everything's going okay with the, the yeah. other party. And um, on an emotional level and an mm. artistic level, and that's not easy for everyone. Right. And you need someone who can be good at that. My friend um, Pete Harper, actually, I, who's a really great artist and is coming out with a record right now, that is really great. Um, I don't know the title of it, but uh, he's great at that. He's really great at thinking of, you know, the overall concept of the song, kind of nailing that down and then figuring out how to find creative um, ways to convey the concept. And I mean, that's what songwriting is, but it's but he's really good at coming with that, mm. um, coming up with that on the spot. Uh, so that was a that was a good experience for sure. I've learned a lot from those people. Going back to that song, Bound, uh, with Joe Henry, that you recorded outside, uh, and you did it at Sonic Ranch, right, in El, in El Paso? Exactly, yeah. And then you, there was this water tower that you used for a reverb chamber. Mm -hmm. My question is, if you could record an entire album outdoors mm -hmm. in a special crazy place that you've maybe seen or visited, where would that be? Oh, man. Such a great question. Every time Tyler and I would record iPhone de demos of songs we were working on that we would catch, you know, like a flock of birds kind of talking to each other. Yeah. And it was always one of my favorite parts of the song and then we would record it and wouldn't be there anymore. So maybe I would I would record a whole record on, on Tyler's patio or something outside um, or in a forest somewhere mm. or a canyon. Mm. That'd be amazing. It'd be truly amazing. Yeah, I need to. I need to set some studio goals, some outdoor studio field goals. recordings. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. Those are some where some of the great, you know, records were made. Field music and yeah, it's nothing should be confined to, uh, you know, the typical way of recording. We should always be thinking outside of that box. I think. And I think. Uh... I read that you used uh, Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar as the launch pad for the Plain Letters track. Mm -hmm. I think it would be cool to collaborate, like have musicians, instead of collaborating with other musicians, like collaborate with authors. Absolutely. And like dancers, mm -hmm. you know, comedians, you know, like, like inter-media uh, collaborations should happen more. You know, like the ghost of Sylvia Plath, if she comes back, it's like, all right, I'm gonna do a record with Madison Cunningham. It'd be amazing. I mean, that happens all the time, whether we admit it or not. Like for me, books are, you know, my one of my greatest inspirations for songs, more than music is. Mm. When I'm writing, I don't listen to a whole lot of music, but I read a lot. Because you can be going through a book and there can be a phrase that, and there's your concept. Mm. And Sylvia did that. Well, I mean, uh, a lot of what I took from was just her life and how she mm -hmm. described because the bell jar is pretty uh, much a, on her personal story, and uh, that's kind of where I drew from. Is there a specific line or part of the song that connects most deeply to from that book? She talks a lot about... Um, this is a little bit gruesome, I guess, but she talks a lot about, like, she was suicidal for a long time, and that's it how she ended up taking her, her life. Um, but she she did a lot of um, cutting mm. and she she would cut her knees when she was depressed and then she'd put band-aids over them. And there's a line in this song that says, uh, you've got a case of winter 
like no one's ever seen hmm. and is that a new bandage on your knees um and I, that was her and her mom had sort of a strained relationship but it was only because her mom really really cared and was concerned about her daughter but um Sylvia felt like her concern sort of came from a place that didn't really understand her condition she kept mm. trying to heal it with with band-aids instead of mm. with um you know with with things that would really change it and fix it or you know and so that Sylvia is kind of talking about like how she felt a little bit misunderstood by her mom she didn't really understand the weight of the situation five girls in one house growing up yep exactly it's intense <laughs> are you more like your mom or your dad you think I'm such an even split but um I'm a lot like my dad I'm a lot my dad is pretty, he's quiet in a way, but he's, he cares about people. I feel like I'm complimenting myself now, but, um, but he asks a lot of questions and I kind of do the same thing when I'm talking to people. I just, mm. I don't necessarily guide conversations. I just ask a lot of questions. <laughs> well, as a, as a pastor, he has to sort of get in front of people and even if he's a, maybe an introvert deep yeah. down, you know, yeah. he has to relay his vision of the world to sort of try to help people and, you know, lift them up. Yeah, you know, and that's, totally. I mean, that's what you're doing every night on stage. That's whether true. Whether you think you are or not, you know. Yeah, no, it's true. It's it's definitely song, you know, for me, concerts are a healing thing. So I, I hope that for other people when they come and hear the music that it's a healing thing for them too. Um, yeah, I mean... More and more, though, I think I'm like my mom, too. <laughs> I've been saying things recently, and I'll look at my husband, Austin, and be like, oh, my gosh, I'm my mom. I'm my mom, aren't I? You can't escape it. You just can't. You become your parents. <laughs> you got married pretty young. I did. I did. I got married really Does young. Does it feel different, being married? Um, Kind of. Not, not really. I think... the. The, the title makes people feel like it's mm -hmm. it's you know very very different from what it was and it, it it is but it doesn't feel we just feel like you know like we were when we were dating mm -hmm. yeah, it's like driving from Indiana into Illinois you're like oh it should be different exactly it, it is but it's it there's a I think there's a nice continuity to it you know. Is that there's a progression. It's yeah. not. It's not. That's a really good comparison. It's. It's not this crazy, crazy scenery shift. It's just gradual. I took a, a picture of this because I think you would find it kind of hilarious. When you go on Google and you put your name, there's like the autocorrect what people are searching for type things, right? Uh huh. Which I was kind of surprised. So it's first thing that comes up, not music or not like tour or whatever. It's Madison Cunningham, Catholic. <laughs> Madison Cunningham, fiance, <laughs> family, who are you now? Uh, but like, it's like. Catholic? Like, people are like, hmm, what religion is she? Seriously, that's funny. Austin's gonna be really stoked that he made it on that list. <laughs> They're like, who I'm is so he? About that. <laughs> I understand. I'm one of those people. If there's, you know, an artist that I like, I'll. I wanna know what their personal life looks like. Yeah. I, I care about that. <laughs> Helps me understand them more. What is the line that you try to not cross when you're writing songs about personal things? Or is everything on the table? Yeah. Everything's... I try to keep it open and I try to not make um, walls that I can run into. But, um, yeah, I, I think my biggest thing is I just try to not point fingers. Because mm. that's really easy to do. Um... It, you know, in song, in songwriting, I try to make it general and mm. hidden and not too um, explicit on, on what it is that I'm trying to hit. And I, when it gets into that territory, um, I don't like the song anymore. Because mm. there's, there's a time for that, I think, you know, when you can be more like, mm -hmm. it's you I'm talking about. Um, but I, I, I like to be mystified because that's, uh, to me, that's poetry. And I, I'm drawn to the way, um, you know, 
words sound and words and the way they flow. And I think when things get too direct, that mm -hmm. flow is sort of broken off and it doesn't, it just stops. I mean, I think, you know, it's impossible not to write about love and heartbreak, you know, especially yeah. when you're young. Mm -hmm. Like, do you worry, and this is a weird question, that being in a happy, lasting relationship this soon will decrease your songwriting possibilities? I didn't worry about it until someone said that. And then I was <laughs> until like, I just said that. <laughs> and then I was worried about it. It actually wasn't you, it was someone else. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I hadn't thought about it, but it's actually a good challenge because like you said, it's like yeah. writing songs about love is kind of a crutch. Yeah. And not that it's not important and not yeah, yeah. valuable, but that's what we can resort to. And it's it's caused me to think outside of that. And because mm. there's so many things to write about. Authors never really run out of things to write about, so songwriters shouldn't either. <laughs> Do you find yourself more of a fictional fantasy songwriter or a autobiographical songwriter? Probably autobiographical. I would like to think that I could delve into some fiction, but I don't think I've really done that yet. Um, I don't know if I can, actually. But, yeah, more. But in the, at the same time, a lot of songwriting, even if it comes from an autobiographical place, it's it's also fictional. Yeah. Sometimes to get your your point across, or when you find the, the, the nail that you're trying to hit, sometimes you have to kind of make up some of it. <laughs> well, I do my best to listen. Your song, uh, Song in My Head, definitely touches on some of, I think, my biggest fears, but I think a lot of the reason why we write songs, which hmm. is the, you know, uh, I do my best to listen, but I'm uncomfortable with too much silence. Hmm. I don't want to be forgotten, hmm. but I got a reason to believe I, I might. Hmm. And it's this sort of, the wellspring of all creation is this need to put your name on the wall somehow mm. in that jail cell like someone must know that I was here you know yeah. and it actually always amazes me when people who are really talented have no need to share their art with mm. other people because there's friends right who are like great singers or you know songwriters but they're like oh yeah I, I'm not going to ever play this for anyone but maybe you or my family mm. mode of survival you know yeah and do you do you think that that is part of what drives you that need to tell the story that people will hear a hundred years from now? Yeah, yeah, and I I I, I think that that is a that's a subconscious pressure because I want you know I think all of us as songwriters wish that we could could write something like Joni or Dylan or something that has such an apparent legacy attached to it mm -hmm. that, you know, our generation still celebrates and is still totally in awe of. Um, but I try my best to not think in those terms because then mm -hmm. I start writing crappy songs. But, um, yeah, I do hope that, that in, in the songs that I write that there's enough value in it that people can that people will remember it. And mm -hmm. I think that one, 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 one of my big fears is that uh, I would just write something so mundane or so self-centered or so selfish that people would just kind of write it off and forget about it. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I want my songwriting to be something that is inclusive and is something people can kind of see themselves in. Because that's, that's powerful. If, if people can... Um, hear you telling your story and can see their story in it, you mm -hmm. know? Is there a song that you've recorded that now you are deeply embarrassed by? My first record, pretty much all the songs I'm deeply embarrassed <laughs> by, is still on Spotify that I should probably... I, I, I toy with taking it down, but 
a lot of people say that that record means something to them. Mm -hmm. And also it's just a part of my story. So I'm just trying not to be ashamed of it. <laughs> but it has nothing to do with the production of the record. It's all yeah. about the lyrics for me. Like yeah. there was just some moments where it felt like the thoughts weren't all the way cooked. And <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, some of the phrases really bug me, but. That is an interesting thing. Like you try to decide which part of your history to wipe away as you're now a more sophisticated, well-dressed entity, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh yeah, there's these pictures from 2009 on our Facebook where wearing like a, a boater hat and like yeah. weird striped pants and you're like, you look like Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. You know? I, I'm not sure that we get to choose what parts of our history we get to wipe away. I think they're all a part of making us and kind of like we didn't get to decide what parts of our future we're gonna were gonna hit us. <laughs> they just they just were or they weren't. And um, I I do wrestle with that though because I I can get I'm just an easily embarrassed person and I just I like to look put together and like I always knew what I was doing and it just it's just not the way it is. Is there a moment where you get on stage where you feel like you might forget all the words and how to play the guitar? Mm-hmm. It's when things get too repetitive, like in, in at the end of tours when I feel yeah. that way. Because I've played this song so many times and it's yeah. this weird thing where my my brain disconnects and I'm on autopilot and autopilot can steer you wrong. <laughs> that is an interesting thing about how sometimes when you know a song too well, you start to forget how it goes. We always talk about it. We're like, let's not overplay this song. Let's not overpractice it. Otherwise, yeah. it loses its um, risk. Yeah. And then the music kind of dies, I think. That's the one thing I think about touring full-time that maybe people don't talk about, but it also is the sad part for me, is that you wrote these songs and you fell in love with them like there were these, you know, new girlfriends that you had, you mm -hmm. know? And then after three straight years of playing them, people like them in the audience, but you've fallen out of love with them. Yeah. And you wish you could show them the new girl, except that they're not ready yet or for whatever reason, like the album's not coming out yet, so you don't yeah. want to overplay it. And so then you just keep sort of bringing out this tired relationship each mm -hmm. night, like you're in a, a, a touring ensemble of cats or something like <laughs> 25 years later, you know? And, and it's it's very joyless at times. Mm -hmm. like and, and I feel like I'm in this feedback loop where I wish I could just play four or five songs that I've never played before every mm. night. And I feel like early on and when, when it was a little more unprofessional, I would we would do that. I would just be like, all right, the song's in A, here we go. Mm. And it was exciting, but also kind of sloppy. Like, I wish there was a way to sort of bridge the gap between that sort of excited amateurism yeah. and the sort of stone-cold professional tiredness that I see in a lot of bands. Because you see, like, th these bands, they're not that excited. They've been touring for two straight months. You know, they're playing the song over and over again. Like, what is the way to bridge that gap? Yeah, I mean, it's all about learning how to fall in love again with, with the thing that you've been living with for most of your life, which is music. I mean, I there's moments where... I just wish I could walk away because it's it mm. feels stale or it feels mm. mundane or all of that. Um, but there's something that kind of brings me in, and I'm always trying to think of how to how to break it up and how to feel it again. And um, one thing to bring it back to touring with Andrew that I noticed from him was he would bring out songs that were 15 years old that you mm. can tell he'd kind of retired for a while, and he'd bring them out of retirement and. Um, and he, it would be like 20 times faster than the record. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but for him, I think it changed the song up because he liked the lyrics and he was just trying to find a way to make it work again or he'd change the tempo or the key or in some way. And I think, I, I've been thinking about that actually. There's one song from, actually Plain Letters from the record. I've, I've been messing with it and changing it up a little bit just because I thought it'd be fun to play it live differently mm. um, and not just be restricted to the record arrangement mm -hmm. that's so dull <laughs> after a while yeah and I think I think we have to challenge ourselves more 
uh, and not just sort of fall into the, well, this is how it goes Yeah. mentality, which yeah. you can fall into, you know, like, yeah. well, we have our parts and uh, that's it. Yeah, demoitis. What is your, uh, your movie that you would watch before you die? You one that's it. invented or one that I would write? <laughs> or that, I would say the movie that means so much to you that you'd have to watch it one more time if you were dying. Probably Shawshank Redemption. Mm. Probably want to watch that movie while I was dying or before I was gonna die. That was one of those movies that it's always on TV and every time it's on, I stop everything and, st and like watch it to the so end. It's so good, it's so good. There's just such justice that is satisfied. Can you remember a, a show at some point recently that you actually could feel like the pure joy of, of performance? Like there's always yeah. like those those like few shining moments mm -hmm. on a tour where like that one moment you're like, this is where I'm supposed to be in the universe. Totally, totally. Um, the last time we, last show of the tour was in, in October in Arizona. And with, that, with Andrew Bird? With Andrew Bird. Yeah. I was opening. Um, and that whole 30 minutes, it, it just felt easy mm. and exciting. And, and it's moments like that that, you know, give you the strength to face the really difficult nights. And there's usually more of those than there are of the victorious ones. I think it's good to for there to be risk and for you to be grappling with your nerves and to, you know, I don't know, I love the I love the conflict of being off stage and feeling like, what am I doing this for? And then getting on stage and then being reminded what a live audience feels like and um, what it's like to put your fingers to strings. And um, it's just, it's touring is a crazy um, emotional, uh, ride because <laughs> it's just it's pretty up and down and the conditions are just pretty abnormal whether they're the best that they can be or the worst that they can be they're just crazy hours and um, but I wouldn't trade it I'm truly thankful and and there's moments where I that I catch um, where I realize wow we are we are some of the lucky few for sure we are the tortured few but we yeah. are the lucky few <laughs> Is there a moment where you did actually kind of lose it that you can remember where everything fell apart? Yeah, I, I don't know if any, I've never experienced it totally falling apart. I think it usually has to do with me. There's been a few times where I've, you know, felt like a show felt so stale and so lifeless and like no one responded and it was awkward and and those moments I just need to be alone and sometimes mm. sometimes cry or sometimes just think about something else. Hmm. Did you grow up writing poetry or short stories or plays or anything, or is it all music? I wrote plays for my sisters. Hmm. And I can't really remember them. Probably weren't worth documenting. Uh, but yeah, I wrote stories and I wrote. You could do a Little Women like full on performance totally, in your family. Totally. I'd have to maybe write in the fifth character, hmm. but that would be fine. Beth is still going to die if, you know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Beth is still gonna die, but but the fifth sister will kind of step into place. She'll become a woman by the time Beth dies. Sorry if we gave it away <laughs> to anyone alert. who's not seen it. How are your sisters discovering music? Like, how are the young, the youngest mm. kids these days? You think finding new music? Because obviously, even the stuff that you know I was listening to ten years ago. You know, with your iPad, I you know iPod, mm -hmm. and you know iTunes. iTunes like won't exist in the next year, basically. You know, so yeah. are they finding it all through YouTube and and Snapchat or I mean, like what? How are they finding their favorite music? You'd be surprised. I mean, this this isn't surprising. Um, I think Instagram is something that they kind of go off of. Radio is something that they go off of, which I was really doubtful that people still cared about radio. Mm. Just like mainstream yeah, they, pop radio. They love but but I guess I guess they kinda weed through it because their their favorite artist is Kendrick Lamar. Mm. Which like I think maybe one or two of his songs are on mainstream radio. Yeah. Um 
but they're really into like Drake, mm. Kendrick. Like rap is 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 kind of king right now when mm. it comes to um, what younger kids are consuming. They're mm. they're all about it, and I think my parents are. They understand it, but I think they worry that some of it's too crass and some of the content is, mm. is too intense to deal with. But but it's brought up really great conversations, like with my little sisters, a lot um, about race and racism. And mm. they're really into that conversation, and they're young. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't really see a lot of white kids from Orange County at their age worrying about that mm. because they're comfortable. And, and I think... Um, they, they probably don't worry about it to the extent that they maybe should or, but it's, it's a really, it's, it's a cool conversation starter. And I think the great thing about Kendrick is he's like, he's speaking from his experience and he's speaking to a deeper issue, but in a way that is appealing to the mm -hmm. people he's kind of preaching at, mm -hmm. which I think is such a genius, yeah a genius move. Um, I think there's a, an interesting debate right now about how much or how little songwriters and performers should be openly political mm -hmm. or expressing their desires for change yeah. um, without it hammering people over the head and mm -hmm. pushing them even farther away. Yeah, because I think it all goes down, you know, I personally think it's all a, a, a deeper issue. Um, and it's that's hard to explain, but I think I think we all kind of want to put labels on things, and and that's what's gotten us um, in trouble mm. in 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 a political way, um, and that's that's where the the division comes from is because we all want to simplify mm. a really complicated era and complicated issues, and um, I do think that there's moments of saying exactly what you mean and. I'm, as a songwriter, kind of wrestle with how much I should say and how much I should, you know, how much I should hold back. And because that's like, like we were talking about earlier, it all kind of goes back to like just wanting to, to not tell people, but to show. Mm. And if you kind of just sometimes so obviously say it, it, it makes people feel like, oh, you're preaching at me. Mm. Great. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, and Kendrick, I think, as much as in a lot of his songs, he is saying exactly what he means. He's also kind of covering it and coding it in, in brilliant, like, rhyme structure and rhythm and, and pop sensibility. And he, he's just, he's the poet of our generation, I think. Mm. He's, he's um, kind of bringing both things together, as far as I can see, both mm. sides together in a way. I really admire him. I'm, I'm seriously such a fan, and I become more of one every day. <laughs> I just think he's he's totally brilliant. If you could collaborate with any artist, living or dead, mm -hmm. who would it be? Write an album together. Probably Fiona Apple. Mm. Hey, she's probably just down the street. Probably. I'm a huge fan. Or Rufus Wainwright. Mm. I love Rufus Wainwright. I really do. There's so many good, good artists out there. That's mm -hmm. you. You really challenged me today with some <laughs> some good questions <laughs> about myself and and creativity. What song would you like to play? <laughs> <laughs> to transition, um, I'm gonna play a song called "Something to Believe In." Actually, Ooh. Um, yeah. So this one, kind of what we were talking about earlier, was kind of to speaking to maybe the skeptic who skeptical of love but also I kind of had the idea of someone who's um, skeptical of faith too I don't know mm. why that kind of came in my head but I don't know where the lines are drawn or where the connection is made in this song necessarily but you know I think we're all in this chaotic generation looking for something that is stable and something that's true and something mm. that will provide peace and clarity mm. and so I think good friends can do that and and um, a lot of things music good music all right here we go all right. 
Thanks to Madison Cunningham for uh, venturing down to the west side to talk to me. Uh, you can go to madisoncunningham.com for her music and her tour dates. Her newest record is called Who Are You Now? It is beautiful. Please listen to it. Uh, she'll be playing some more dates with Andrew Bird coming up in December in Chicago to start. And then she'll be playing some stuff with Iron and Wine. So lots of awesome stuff coming from her. Uh, if you go to the bluegrasssituation.com, you can see that uh, in 2018 she did a really cool uh, mixtape of her favorite 12 songs that are inspiring her right now. She actually sees uh, songs in colors. And you know what? I'm going to have to try that sometime. I wanted to quickly send a big thanks to everyone who has been listening to this podcast. I know we're still pretty new, and uh, you know what? There's a lot of things you can listen to, and I'm very grateful to the folks who've been uh, checking out our episodes. And you know what? If you found 
someone that you love on here, let us know. Write a review on our iTunes page or on Stitcher or on Spotify. And uh, we have some really fun episodes to come, including next week when I'm able to share the conversation I had with gospel folk pioneer Liz Weiss. We were able to record it in an old church she was playing, and uh, the song that she recorded was actually a reconfigured version of Woody Guthrie's This Land Is Our Land. It gave me chills, so check it out next week. My squad, Dust Bowl Revival, will be uh, traveling to Ohio and New York this week. We'll be at Memorial Hall in Cincinnati, November 21st, uh, playing Gar Hall in Peninsula, Ohio, the 22nd, then going up to Nazareth College in Rochester, New York, on the 23rd, and finishing before Thanksgiving at Colony in Woodstock, New York. So check that out. And very exciting, our new record is coming out January 31st. It's called Is It You, Is It Me? Like I mentioned at the top of this episode, Mirror, the new single, comes out on Friday, the 22nd. And you know what? All these record release shows were announced a few weeks ago, uh, including some big ones like back-to-back California shows at the Fillmore in San Francisco on February 28th and the Troubadour in L.A. on the 29th. Hey, it's a leap year. Let's make it special. I hope we can sell out those shows. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you're curious what podcasts I'm listening to right now, I highly recommend uh, the new show that Radiolab put out called Dolly Parton's America. Maybe you're not a big country music fan or you think that Dolly Parton is just that funny blonde lady uh, with big boobs who sings old country songs, but my God, what a brilliant songwriter and what a cool story that uh, Jad Abumrad brings out of her. She is truly an American treasure and I've learned so much from it. So Dolly Parton's America. And as always, thanks for sharing this podcast with your friends. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. If you love The Show on the Road, please leave us a review or rating over at iTunes.com slash show on the road. Tell your friends, and also be sure to check out BGS's ever-growing collection of podcasts up right now on the bluegrasssituation.com. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail. <laughs>